we uh, bow our heads to pray as we stand. Lord Jesus, you called uh, your disciples uh, by the sea with a word. And we pray that we might hear the calling on our lives today by the word that you offer us in our reading. We ask it for the sake of your glory in the church and in the world around us. Amen. Do please sit. And you'll find that uh, we're on the page 1172 of the Church Bibles. Uh, In 2010, Washington State uh, University published the results of some research uh, from their psychology faculty. They'd set up uh, a game involving uh, teams distributing points among themselves. But they'd set up people in those teams so that uh, some people were asked to act in a a greedy way that was defined with the points that they had, and others were told that they uh, were to act uh, in a deliberately unselfish way with the points that they had. And then the others were interviewed after the uh, assessment uh, to, to see how they reacted to the experiment in which they'd been part. Uh, and what happened was that uh, there, was in, there was obviously resentment at those who'd been behaving in a greedy way, but there was also resentment at those who had behaved in an unselfish way. They were resented as do-gooders, And the team worked it through, and it looks like what happened was that the people who were behaving unselfishly were resented because they raised the bar for everyone else's behavior. So everyone else felt condemned by the behavior of the do-gooders, and they were uh, resented. That's possibly what is reflected if you look up the word do-gooder in urbandictionary.com, where it will tell you that it is someone who knows what is best for everyone and is forever stuffing it down their throats. In 2011, uh, there was a celebration of the anniversary of the publication of the King James Version Bible. And we were reminded time and time again of the ways in which that translation has entered into the language of everyday conversation and discourse. And the phrase, the word, do-gooder, is actually from today's reading. Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Let us do good to all men, it said in the King James Version. And that phrase went on, it became important, it was part of what you did. You did good, and so you became a do-gooder. And so eventually, at Washington State University, you were resented. That dislike and resentment is a reminder that doing good is complicated. It's more than it might seem. And the first thing we need to do is really just to see 
where it fits in to the whole story that's been going on through this letter. So a quick uh, reminder. Uh, Paul, having preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, finds that in in the Galatian church, there are people who have followed behind him and are persuading others to say, Jesus is great, but if you want to enjoy the full blessing of Jesus, then the important thing is to get yourselves inside the Jewish faith if you're not already there. Uh, And that, of course, means uh, being circumcised, following the food rules, uh, observing the Sabbath, and so on. They are those who are trying to mark their identity by saying, well, we know who we are, we follow Jesus, and we know where we belong because we're circumcised, we do the food law thing, and we do the Sabbath thing. To which Paul has said, no, you can't do that. You can't say Jesus and. To say Jesus and is to say Jesus minus. You can't add anything to Jesus because if you add anything to Jesus, you're actually taking something away. And so, uh, apart from the detailed arguments, uh, just to kind of pick up the story near where uh, we are today, in chapter 5, he's talked about freedom in Christ. You don't have to have those identity markers. If you go for some of them, like the three I just mentioned, then you better go for all of them. You've got to go for all of them because you can't follow the Jewish law a bit. You've got to have the whole thing, the whole package. Then at the uh, end of chapter 5, he's had this division that may be well familiar to us between the acts of the flesh, the sinful nature, and the fruit of the Spirit. And that leads in in chapter 6 to what we heard from Diana uh, last week, that uh, as part of the flow-through of the fruit of the Spirit, we are to carry one another's burdens. Now, what's holding all of this together? We're coming towards the end of the, the reading, and both in the English and in the original, you're gonna, you're, we're beginning to see very short phrases, as though he's done with the big explanations, and he's now just putting in some kind of uh, short big principles to hold on to. A man reaps what he sows. It was a proverb then. There's probably versions of it now. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Short phrases. We're coming to the summary. These are the big principles that get to the heart of what he's been about. There are warnings here, and there are promises some do this and do, don't do that. But a lot of it in this section is now just, this is the way it is. It's final moments. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, verse 8, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. I'm not telling you where to put yourself in that, says Paul. That's just the way it is. That's the principle. You work out how you want to fall into that or not. You reap what you sow. If you belong to the flesh, to the sinful nature, then you will be stuck in the acts of the sinful nature. End of of chapter 5. And your future is simply destruction. If, on the other hand, you belong to the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you will display the fruits of the Spirit. End of chapter 5. And you will come to eternal life if you don't give up. It's basic principles. This is the way it is. 
Now, what would be the point of talking to a church on a Sunday about a basic distinction between those who live by the Spirit and those who live by the sinful nature? Yes, we all know the continuing power of sin. Of course we do. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about absolutely basic decisions as to what we belong to. And of those two options in that basic decision, nearly all of us will be on the side of the Holy Spirit. Whatever your life was like last week, whether you can look back on a spectacularly holy week, or whether you can say, yeah, well, I goofed up and I sinned a bit. We would, I, I, I don't think it would be particularly helpful if I was to call for a vote right now and say, uh, which of us uh, lives by the Holy Spirit and which of, us, which of us lives by the sinful nature? I don't think it would get very far. And here is the danger of forgetting the rest of the letter. Diana reminded us last week that there are no chapter divisions, no paragraph divisions, there's no uh, headings, uh, neat headings at the top of paragraphs. And it's also true that this is a letter. It's intended to be read at a sitting. It's not intended to be studied in kind of chunks one week apart. When Paul is discussing the life of the spirit and the sinful nature, therefore, he's not starting a different topic from the one with which he began. This split between sinful nature and spirit isn't new within his letter. What he means and what he has meant all along is this. If you choose Jesus... And if you choose to mark your identity, sorry, if you choose Jesus and, if you choose Jesus and, if you choose to mark your identity in any other way than simply following Jesus, then your marker of identity, and in this case that's circumcision, the food laws, the Sabbath laws, the law of Israel, the the markers of identity will be your downfall they are the guarantee that you can't get beyond the acts of the sinful nature because what you will do is discover they don't work. They can't change you. The very fact that you will have then reckoned Jesus not to be enough binds you so that you do not have the power of the Spirit available to deal with the sinful nature. If you add to Jesus, if you say Jesus plus, then you will find yourself stuck In chapter 9, verse 19 onwards, in the acts of a sinful nature. And you won't have any way out. Now, on the contrary, he says, let's consider life in the Spirit. If you don't have, if you've given up on the law of Israel, because you've allowed Jesus, because you follow Jesus in the power of the Spirit, is that going to mean that every law is thrown out of the window? that life becomes shapeless, or that life could take any old shape that you want it to. No. Because the Spirit who has this power is the Spirit of Jesus who loved us with a certain shape to that love. So to be in touch with His Spirit 
is to have that same shape of love. So, just to recover um, other things he's already said, use your freedom to be one another's servants and slaves. Restore the brother whose sin needs attention, but gently, because you know the power of sin is there for you too. Bear with one another in long-suffering patience and bear one another's burdens. Look soberly at your own achievement and work, knowing what your real worth is. Now, that's all been covered in what he's already written. This is the shape of the love of Christ as lived out by the Spirit of Christ, the Son of God. And this week, in this passage, he adds one more, although it also covers quite a few of the others too. Do good. Now, of course, that's not the same as be a do-gooder, although it did give rise to the phrase. It does mean, I think, not just an accidental doing good, not a random doing good, like the people in that Washington State University experiment, uh, doing good along the way, as it were. It's rather a more active do good, plan to do good. And that means we have to take a look at what options there might be. Well, just around, uh, around us today, we don't have to look very far. There's Besom, creating a bridge uh, between those who have stuff, or experiences, or time, and those who might need those facilities. And isn't it a sad indictment of the churches who are supposed to do good that we, and let's say we, not they, that we have failed to take up all those opportunities. We've had a certificate through uh, this week. It's always nice to get certificates. We've had a certificate through this week from the Norwich Food Bank. Apparently we have now given enough food to sustain 67 people each for three days. That's obviously the unit they use, the three-day measure. We've given enough to uh, do 67. I suspect we could do a lot more than that. Fourth Sunday, uh, uh, let's work on our food bank. What about working, doing good with money? I know a couple of families in the church... Uh, who work with Charities Aid Foundation or Stewardship uh, to set up uh, an account uh, which is already gift-aided from which they can then give uh, to existing uh, work that's going on but also gives them freedom to be spontaneous. And I commend that to you. It's one of the things that we do, Natalie and I. Let me say something about the Jafaris. It was extraordinarily moving to see so many people gathered around the Jafari family last week as they'd heard that the asylum uh, service was sending them to Coventry. It didn't. On Monday, uh, they were told they were not going to Coventry. They were going to, uh, had to present themselves at the Red Cross in town instead. Much changing of bags, much change, and they were simply put on a bus and moved to Birmingham. 
They've been in a hostel in Birmingham for a few days and they've just had the news that actually, no, they're now going to move to a house in Coventry. Uh, And it's possible, they're told, that they may then be allowed to apply to move back to Norwich. The thing that strikes me more than anything else is that while there was so much we wanted to do for them, what they wanted from us was our prayer. They're not actually desperately poor under normal circumstances. These are not normal circumstances. But what they cover from us is our prayer. And it faces us with our own sense of helplessness that so many of the resources that we think we ought to be able to pour in aren't going to make any difference when people are facing the issues of being at the mercy of a great big bureaucracy. What they want is our prayer. Do good. Of course, the greatest good we can do is evangelism. Although, by definition, that is towards those on the outside. And Paul here makes it clear that he's talking about, yes, he is talking about doing good to all people, verse 10, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Because he knows how easy it is for a church of, say, 10 people all to be doing enormous good out there in the world, and actually the moment they come together, not standing each other. So let's do good, he says, and express the life of the Spirit towards our brothers and sisters. It's not taking on some charity work. It's doing good here. And it is extraordinary. Uh, Margaret Cuffley in the office uh, recently uh, worked through the list of ministries that we have. Uh, some of them are um, make services happen. Some of them are uh, out there. But all of them, in some way, are a service of others. And she reckoned that she could identify 87 different ministries that operate through our church. That's fantastic. It's, it's huge. It's great. We make an enormous difference because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But of course, in any gathering of of resources, what we will find is that some are doing a great deal and many are not doing much. Let me observe one part of this journey in this letter that I want to draw to your attention, because for me it's the most powerful. It's the most powerful in changing who we are and our behavior. If you look at the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5, verses 19 onwards, where would, where would the, um, the, the, the drive of that set, th- those two options take us? To the acts of the sinful nature? Boo! Or to the fruit of the Spirit. Hooray! But it's interesting that the English language lacks precise translations for what Paul means in patience, kindness, goodness in the middle of that fruit. And that matters because for us, we can hear the fruit of the Spirit to be about the development of character in patience and kindness and goodness. But the Greek 
doesn't have any way of just saying patience, kindness, and goodness. They're not character, internal character issues. Each one of them is something to do with others. So patience is putting up with someone who tries your patience. Kindness is doing kind things for, not just being kind, really kind inside. Goodness is doing good things for others. It's not, then, the journey in this letter from discovering God's love, hooray, to loving God. You might think it would be, but it's always the case in the Bible that the journey goes from discovering God's love to loving one another. Yes, to love God, but loving God by loving one another. In active doing of acts of love and patience, kindness and goodness. So if you got to chapter 5 and you thought, oh no, I'm not one of those acts of sinful nature people, I'm one of those fruit of the spirit people, and I look forward to the development inside me of patience and kindness and goodness, great, that was good to get that far. But it's not fundamentally about your character development in some way that's separated from doing the stuff. Do good. Take active steps to do good. Beware, as Diana said last week, the complaint, well, I've already got my time committed. Yes, it may be that you do. I know a number that this half term have uh, been been up to see or down to see elderly relatives. And there is a priority to our families in their needs. But that doesn't mean justifying everything by, oh, it's for the children. Are the children learning from you because they're seeing you doing good? Take active steps to do good as Jesus did and reap a harvest, according to this, of eternal life. Don't be embarrassed by the fact of reward. It's just what will happen. It's not necessarily the reason you do it. But there's one other point that I think is for us. If those are the promises... So to please the Spirit, and you will reap a harvest of eternal life. If that's the promise, where's the warning for us here? Paul was concerned with those who were adding to Jesus, keeping the Jewish law. But again, I don't think I'd get many takers if I said, who is trying to keep the Jewish law? And the easy target then for us is to say, oh, that's about the religious people. That's about the people we know who go to church but have never turned to follow Christ. It's for them out there. And I never really like going for easy targets. I think it's our job when we come to Scripture to say, where is God addressing us? The point about these people is that following Jesus wasn't enough. They needed to mark their identity in some other way. And they reached for what was to hand, the Torah, the law of Israel we may reach for an identity marker in being an evangelical church. We're not like all those other churches around us. Oh, dear me, no. We're right. We've got the Bible nailed. Well, I don't want anyone to give up on the Bible. I want us to be people of 
good news from the Bible, which is what evangelicals should mean. How I want that. But it will always be a danger for a church with a certain kind of name to it, that we depend upon the name to do our work for us. If we rest back and say, we're all right, we're evangelical, that's when we're in danger. Because all the dynamic, the bad dynamic of this letter will overtake us. We will rely on that instead of on serving one another. We'll rely on that instead of restoring one another when we sin. We'll rely on that instead of bearing one another's burdens. We'll rely on that, ironically, on being evangelical rather than doing evangelism and conveying the good news to our friends and neighbors. We'll rely on that, on the doing good that is possible to be, to be marked only as an evangelical church instead of the doing good that this is talking about. It's good to be evangelical if that means a commitment to Jesus and his news and the shape of his extraordinary love for us. It's bad if it's being so big E evangelical that we forget what it was about in the first place. So do good. Do good. Especially if you're ever tempted to rely on something about your church other than following Jesus. Do good. Let's pray. Hundreds of years ago, someone came up with this. I've updated it a bit. Being set right with God is by faith alone. But the faith that sets us right with God is never alone. Being set right with God is by faith alone. But the faith that sets us right with God is never alone. Lord God, you know our hearts. You know what the temptations are for each one of us to mark our identity in ways that do not flow from the Holy Spirit of Jesus. You know the times when we're part of the problem instead of part of the solution. The times we speak when we should be silent. The times we're silent when we should speak. You know the times when we're apathetic, when we could have done good. We do not want the name of being do-gooders. We don't even want the name of being evangelical if it doesn't result in good in this world. Make us what your Holy Spirit means by good, that we might echo the character of Jesus 
in his church and in his world, that he may be glorified forever. Amen.